It has been a long time since I first preached in this chapel. I'd like to tell you it's less terrifying now than low those many decades ago, but that is just not true. The nerves and the butterflies and the adrenaline rush are still there, and that's a good thing. Because whatever condition the church may be in on any given day, and whatever the medium of communication du jour, it is still a high and holy privilege to be entrusted with the gospel. And this week is a celebration of our common calling to engage that gospel with and for and among the people of God. Like most of you, this is my first experience at the Engel Institute. And if you didn't already know it, you certainly got this sense at orientation that the next five days will be nothing short of drinking from a fire hose. So drink up, my friends. What a gift to have this time away with faculty scholars who are so generous with their time and their wisdom. And in the midst of all that deep learning, my hope is that these services of worship will be moments for deep connect connection with the one who has called you into this work. My prayer, and Martin's as well, is that worship will be a place where you can rest in the presence of God, in the company of this people of God, and where your hearts and souls will be filled as well as your heads and your notebooks. Let us turn now to the gospel reading, which comes from the first chapter of Mark. I begin the reading in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Baptist minister's son was quite young when he witnessed his first baptism by immersion in the Sunday morning service. He was fascinated. And not long after the family returned home that afternoon, the boy took it upon himself to baptize their three cats in the bathtub. The kitten didn't know what was going on, but took it pretty well. The middle cat saw what was happening and tried to run, but the boy was quicker. Two down. Finally, it came time to baptize the old family tomcat. This did not go well. The cat struggled and hissed and clawed and tore the boy's skin before he finally got away. Undeterred, the boy caught the old tom again and proceeded with the ceremony. The cat was madder than ever, clawing and spitting and scratching the boy's face. Finally, after barely getting the cat splattered with water, the boy dropped him on the floor in disgust. Fine, he said. Fine. Be a Presbyterian if you want to. <laughs> All the gospel writers agree that Jesus' baptism is a critical moment. In all four Gospels, it marks the beginning of his public ministry. It is the outward confirmation of his identity as the Son of God. This is my Son, the Beloved. And like most of his Gospel, Mark's account of Jesus' baptism is the no-frills version. Jesus goes to the river, asks John to baptize him. But then, Mark adds this one little detail. When Jesus comes up out of the water, he looks up, and he sees the heavens torn apart 
and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Mark alone uses that language. When I run my fingers over the text, it's one of those bumpy places that gets my attention. The heavens are torn apart. The ancients had a particular understanding of the heavens. The ancient Hebrews assumed that the earth was like a round plate surrounded by water, not only on the sides, but underneath and above as well. And a firm bowl kept the upper waters back, but had gates to let the snow and the rain through. That's the picture we get from the first chapter of Genesis. Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so, and God called the dome sky. In other words, according to that understanding, the world is a lot like one of those cheese plates with a clear glass domed cover, and above the dome and all around it is water, and above the water somewhere is the dwelling place of God. Now, if you can picture the world like that, you understand why the story of Noah says that the windows of the heavens were opened when the rains began, or why Jacob dreams of a ladder stretching up into heaven. It's why some people refer to God as the dude upstairs, or all those baseball players who gave God credit for their home runs this afternoon pointed their fingers up instead of pointing down. God, for a lot of people, is out there or up there watching us from a distance. But we get a very different picture at Jesus' baptism. After Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, the Gospels say that the heavens open and the Spirit descends. Except Mark doesn't just say that the skies open. That's what Matthew says. That's what Luke says, that the heavens were opened. But Mark says that Jesus sees the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending. The Greek word that Mark uses here is schizo. It means to tear or to rend or to break. It's where we get words like schism and schizophrenia. And Barbara Lundblad points out that it's not the same as the word to open. I open the door, I close the door. The door is exactly the same. But something that is torn apart never goes back together quite like it was before. The ragged edges never seem to fit quite as well. Mark knows exactly what he's doing using that word, schizo. He remembers Isaiah's cry to God centuries before, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. You see, I don't think the barrier was ever God's idea in the first place. I don't believe God ever intended to be separated from us as we sometimes imagine, observing us from above like somebody looking at a piece of cheese under glass. The story of the incarnation is that God doesn't want to be on the outside looking in. God wants to be here among us. And as the heavens are torn open, the Spirit leaks through. The ragged places don't quite hold like they once did. Like great-grandmother's broken teacup, while it may be glued back together, it will never hold water again. Where the heavens have been torn open, God's grace seeps in and drenches our world. Those torn and imperfect places are a gift. As Leonard Cohen says, the cracks are where the light gets in. 
This stole I'm wearing this evening was a gift. It was made for me by the mother of a former college student turned seminarian. She quilted a similar stole for Rachel's ordination and then another one for me. She chose the colors and the patterns because she says they remind her of the Smoky Mountains in our East Tennessee backyard. But there's something about this stole and about every piece of quilting that Amy does, which I learned only recently. There is a flaw in here somewhere. I don't know where and my eye's not good enough to pick it out. But Amy tells me that she deliberately stitches a flaw into everything she makes. It's a tradition she picked up from the Amish and the Mennonites that a quilter puts an intentional flaw into every quilt because only God is perfect. A similar myth says that the weaver of a Persian rug always makes a mistake on purpose so as not to offend Allah. Native American bead workers say nothing in the world created by the Great Spirit is perfect, and so in humility, no one should attempt to outdo the Great Spirit. Therefore, if one's creation were somehow to come out absolutely flawless, a tiny imperfection should be introduced at the very end. I find that all very comforting. I don't know about you, but in my life, there's very little perfection and a whole lot of flawed and ragged edges. And so as we gather for worship this week, I want us to consider some preaching moments around those ragged places. Seminary did a pretty good job of teaching us how to exegete a text in the creation job of, process of, of sermon creation, but it didn't take any of us long to find out that a whole lot of preaching is about exegeting life and exegeting the life of our congregations. And so I want us to look this week at a few moments in preaching, baptism tonight, and then the wedding homily, and the funeral sermon, and finally the Lord's Supper. Unique moments where it feels to me as if grace and brokenness and what has been and what can be all come together. You may remember that the word schizo appears one other place in the Gospel of Mark, at the very last chapter. At the end of his life on earth, Jesus hangs on a cross between heaven and earth, and when he breathes his last, Mark says the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom, torn apart just as the heavens had been torn apart. And in terms of the architecture of the temple, what that means is that the Holy of Holies is no longer off limits to the people. The curtain can never be repaired. And as that happens, a Roman centurion reiterates the truth that was spoken 16 chapters earlier at the river. Remember what he says? Truly this man was the Son of God. So at the precise beginning and the precise end of Jesus' earthly ministry, things get torn. The barrier that once separated the realm of God from the realm of humanity has been torn open, and because of that, God is present with us in a whole new way. And it works the other way, too, you know. From all those torn places in our lives, God's Spirit seeps out from us to others. 
Whether we know it or not, God uses all those weak and broken places to flood others' lives with grace. A few years ago, one of our members died very young and very suddenly from cancer. Carol, his wife, was just lost. She was in a daze through the whole memorial service. But when we got down to the fellowship hall for the reception, the most amazing thing happened. Two other women from the congregation, both of whom had lost husbands to cancer in the previous six months, made a beeline for Carol. They didn't know her, she didn't know them, but that ragged place in their own hearts became a channel through which God's comfort could flow. I have a crazy suspicion that that's why we're all here this week. Because something about the work of preaching tears us open and either encourages or invites or forces us to exegete our own lives in the process. Nadia Boltz-Weber says, we do not preach from our wounds. We preach from our scars. But what are scars if not ripped and torn places of our very own. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the reaffirmation of the baptismal covenant, which I hope is simply the liturgical observance of what we have come to do this week. Maybe you were first immersed in a chlorinated church baptistry, or a lake, or a swimming pool, or a hot tub. Maybe you were baptized in some mainline church and gently sprinkled with a tiny scoop of water that a custodian had thoughtfully warmed up ahead of time. <laughs> Whatever your baptism was like, I hope that this week will drop you smack dab out into the middle of the Jordan River with Jesus once again with mud squishing under your feet and water swirling around your legs. Let those waters rush over you and wash away the anxiety and the apprehension and the fear and whatever else you need to let go of. Let the river push you around and knock off a few rough edges. Let it soothe you and carry you to places you might never have imagined. Let the power of that river tear you open for good, for God, forever. Amen.